This week, we are joined by Josh Lindley. He is the co-founder and driving force, along with his wife, Jessica Blaine-Smith, behind the Bartender Atlas website. This website is comprised of a worldwide community of bartenders and created for bartenders and cocktail lovers alike. We talk with Josh about his start in the industry as a bar back at the Drake Hotel in Toronto to moving up to bartender, becoming a brand ambassador, discussing the art and craft of bartending, and his latest endeavors working at Bitter Days, La Phoenix, and of course, his website, Bartender Atlas. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. With me, as always, is Dan. How you doing? Still awesome, man. Yeah. No changes there. <laughs> it's just nothing changes. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. You just wake up awesome every day. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Must be nice. Um, yeah, okay. Well, uh, we'll go through the... We have a great guest for you, as always. Josh Lindley is going to be joining us very shortly of Bartender Atlas fame. Uh, anybody in the bartending community should know about this site, and if you don't, you will soon. Um the housekeeping. Uh, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you are interested in being on the Industry Podcast, just DM us at the Industry Podcast. Or um, if you know us personally, you can text or email. Um, finally, once again, a shout out to Zach Hanna at Zach Hanna Design for the artwork. That's Z A K. There'll be a link to Zach's Instagram and then show notes as usual. Mm hmm. Yeah. So we do have a great guest for you. So let's just get right to it. Uh, this is, we're going to bring in right now, Josh Lindley. How are you doing, buddy? Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing it, yes, man. This thank is great. you very much. Yeah. Uh, so I met you through uh, your, like your best friend, Matt Wu, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately. I, I watched an episode of Modern Family where uh, Jay, the granddad and one of his friends keep calling each other best friends and everyone's like, you're grown, man. You got to stop calling each other best friends. Like, whatever. <laughs> whatever. He's my best friend. I'm fine with it. And then they're standing around and like six groups of teen girls walk by and are like, Oh, you're my best friend. And they're both like, yeah, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I did it for you. And then, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, shout out to Matt. Matt brought uh link. Josh and I up. Josh came by sugar run to take a look. Um, and uh, then I ended up on Bartender Atlas, so it was great. Um, but Matt is one of our esteemed wine reps. He works for Halpern. You should check out their portfolio. It's fucking amazing. Um, and we're trying to get Matt on the show, if he can pull his panties up and <laughs> give it a go. I think it's more the diapers that he needs to pull up. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, you would know. <laughs> All right, Josh. So let's, uh, let's just dive right into it. We want to spend a lot of time talking about Bartender Atlas because it's a, it's a unique... Thing that you're doing in the, in the industry community and we want to talk about that but I want to just start by like kind of walking through your bio a little bit um uh so you started sort of in Toronto like you you, you started with a degree in radio broadcasting yeah that's right I uh that was when you're a little kid and you get asked what you want to be when you grow up and everyone says a doctor or a baseball player I wanted to be on the radio uh and then I did it and it's a really bizarre feeling to be 21 and on the radio at a major market radio station, kind of be sitting there thinking, okay, but now what? Right. Yeah. So you were on 102.1 The Edge. So anyone who's on 102.1 yeah. The Edge from, Any uh, I was doing mostly Punkorama. I co-hosted that with George Strombolopoulos. And then when he took oh, off, nice. I took over hosting it um, with my friend Kelly Shouldice. Uh, and we did that for a few years. And then in 2004, I gave my notice on that. 
I also did overnights and I did some remote stuff as well. So, uh, and even before being on the air, I was in the promo department. I was the guy standing around in front of, you know, a Weezer concert, handing out stickers and what's George like in real life? Uh, he's exactly the same dude. Yeah. He, honestly, um, really genuine, uh, serious when he wants to be, and then serious about being funny when he wants to be. Okay. Uh, like, so you guys yeah. got along? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, like yeah. His, okay. That guy has passion. Uh, like, there's nothing, there's nothing contrived about anything that George does. Yeah, you're, that's you're good getting, to hear. Yeah, you're getting 100 percent of who he is all the time. Yeah, that's good because uh, you can never really tell from like uh, somebody watching it on, on TV or listening to him on the radio, right? So you can, yeah, you never know whether it's contrived or not. So that's good to hear. Um, okay, so how do you how do you decide that you're going to break into the service industry, or was it accidental? Or um, I mean, there's a few things. So when I was a kid, I uh, was a dishwasher at a local bakery, and then um, worked the fryer section at a Casey's once upon a time. Like this is you know when I'm 16, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to college, worked at the radio station. While working at the radio station, um, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people are dealing with, especially right now, realizing how media actually is run versus what you might think it is. Um, And so working at the radio station, and I'm not saying that there's any crazy media conspiracy because there isn't. But um, (laughs) but uh, the idea of just like, yeah, I was 21 and I was, you know, uh, full time employed, but still not making enough money to actually live a reasonable life in a major city. Um, and another friend of mine was this, like, it sounds really name droppy, but, uh, a friend of mine was playing bass for Avril Lavigne at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he was playing in front of 60,000 people in Tokyo, but then would walk off the stage and be like, Oh, I'm splitting a hotel room with four other dudes. And when I look at my bank account, I'm getting paid the equivalent of $5 an hour to do it, whatever. Is that and, right? Like, so, because I've always wondered about that. So the backup band of like a major act is making shit money, is that? Well, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Like he didn't record the albums, he didn't write the songs. So he right. was really being paid to go and play these shows. But also there's the allure of being, you know, 22 years old. And yeah, man, you get to travel the world and you play music for a living, mm-hmm. which is amazing and if i was right. a musician then i would probably have done the same thing you know okay but yeah like so what i'm getting at i guess is like so yeah the perks are obvious except for the sleeping with a bunch of other dudes i guess but like the um traveling the world getting to play in front of a bunch of people but the money is just not there if you're not well, I mean, involved we're also talking about 17 or 18 years ago sure and, and also i was very much like this was all second or third hand info that I okay, was getting. That's fair. Hardly, yeah. hardly the uh, authority on any of that. But <laughs> and let's really talk not. about let's talk about uh, money for the radio gig though, because I think that's something else yeah. that people wonder about a lot. You're not making a shit ton of money doing that. No, unless you're the morning show guy that has their face on the side of a jeep that drives around all the time. Like whoever the morning show host is, is probably doing pretty well. Um, but other than that, it's like any other industry, you kind of, you really got to work your way up. And part of me being on the radio at such a young age is that because I sort of landed where I did as quickly as I did, I, through the hubris of youth, probably thought that I deserved more than what I was getting. Uh, And even though, and, you know, and, and you get told all along the way, whether you're in school or whether you're at working with all these people who have had 40 year long radio careers, 
saying things to you like, well, you know, yeah, you've done really well in Toronto. You've got good feet on you. If you move to Charlottetown, you can probably be the midday host. Or if you move to Moose Jaw, you can be the afternoon drive guy. Uh... And, and I was 21 or 22 years old and living in Toronto, which is, you know, best city in Canada, but obviously everyone else in Canada is going to be mad that I say it that way. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, it, it's not really appealing for me. I grew up in a town that only had 15,000 people in it. And so when I moved to Toronto, I was like, this is like, I felt more at home. That's what so you the, idea, the idea of leaving Toronto to go to some place where there's only a quarter of a million people, you know, mm. whether it's London, Ontario, or like I said, Moose Jaw or somewhere outside Calgary, you know, all these ideas were coming up and I could have applied for all those jobs, but then I, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it or felt it or been yeah. as passionate about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so tried to stay in Toronto, didn't really work out for money. And actually this friend of mine who was playing in Avril Lavigne's band decided to quit her band and start up his old band that he was in previously and asked if I might be interested in working in like a tour managing slash working with the label capacity. Oh, so cool. between um, radio and bars, I spent a couple of years sleeping in vans and mm -hmm. driving around with some best friends and getting into trouble, which was a lot of fun and you learn a lot. Uh, especially driving back and forth across Canada a lot and a little bit into the States as well. Um, it's always fun now when I'm working at the bar and someone's like, oh yeah, I'm visiting from, uh, well, a small town outside. Uh, yeah, it's in Saskatchewan. You wouldn't know it. And I'm always like, oh yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, well, you know. Oh, I'm from Swift Current. Oh yeah, breakfast at Humpty's is the best. And they're like, how the hell do you know? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, so I spent two years driving around with bands and then sitting in a basement and sending out press kits and trying to, you know, putting on uh, shows at different bars. And, you know, there's a bunch of different touring stories as well, which is a lot of fun, but also as a Canadian and also as a guy who I couldn't do front of house sound. I don't know how my vision isn't great. So driving at night often wasn't such a great idea. You know, there's a bunch <laughs> of different reasons that uh, touring, touring in that capacity is really cool and you learn a lot, but also uh, it's a great way to go broke. And so I was yeah. 25 before I actually started working in bars and restaurants. Right. And so it, is that just a transition where you're just like, fuck, I need to make some money and this is a good way to do it? Yeah, kind of. I had, uh, you know, I, I had done several other odd jobs, whether, you know, I worked in a call center for a while and sold. I did that. It fucking sucks. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's I mean, the worst. <laughs> it's, it's just soul sucking, man. Yeah, it really is. Like you're literally on the lowest part of a totem pole trying to. Uh, yeah, you're on the lowest part of a ladder trying to convince people that they should be scammed. Yeah. And I feel like the just the, the fucking fluorescent lighting and the drop um, the drop foam ceiling is like what's sucking the life out of you. Like if you look up, you can feel your soul sucking up to that fluorescent lighting. All those, all those <laughs> tiny little holes in that. Oh drop. my they're god! Like, they're like soul sucking little. Those tiny little holes, very much like well, the ones in my heart at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so yeah, I did a couple little jobs in between, and then a friend of mine was working as a bar back at the Drake Hotel, and he was trying to move into a server position, better money, better hours, blah, 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 sure. you know, more opportunity to learn stuff. And, uh, and I guess the manager at the time had not exactly made a deal so much as said, well, if you can find someone that can take your shifts, then we'll talk about you moving into a serving position, right. uh, which is then he was just like, Josh, you need a job. 
you know, you're always talking about how you're jumping from place to place. And so I went and I started barbacking at the Drake Hotel in 2006. Okay, so the Drake Hotel is a pretty big um, hotel nightclub in Toronto. Um, it's been around for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about what the experience of like doing the barback job taught you in your for your industry career going forward. Yeah, well, there was a couple of different things that I really thought about because I'd never I'd spent enough time in bars. The like ongoing joke is that working in bars has been easier on my liver than it was touring with bands or working in radio. <laughs> um, That's amazing, uh, man. Fuck. I'm glad I didn't do those things. <laughs> yeah, it's something. Um, but yeah, so barbacking, especially at that point, um, with what the Drake hotel was, there wasn't really anything like that in that area of the city or, uh, really like in Toronto at the time. It's in the Parkdale area of Toronto, yeah, which is, uh, yeah. yeah, that's coming up now. It's a lot, well, now it's here, but for a lot of years, it was a little rougher down around that area. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. At the time the Drake Hotel opened, it was pretty rough. I actually, mm-hmm. first time I ever was in the Drake Hotel was before uh, the guy who bought it and turned it into what it is now. But before he bought it, it was a legit, like, divey, kind of terrifying uh, venue. And I remember going to see uh super sucker is there once mm. and it's being like "Ooh, i don't know if i am hard enough to be in this movie. <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty dodgy spot but anyway once it was bought renovated um the guy who owned it uh was very inspired by the uh combination of arts and hotels and all stories about like the chelsea or hotel montmartre or all these other places where you know, artists would go and hole up for two months and come out with three of the best records anyone's ever right. seen, mm-hmm. you know, or that kind of thing. Uh, so that was his inspiration behind buying it. As far as me being a bar back there, I honestly, I needed money and um, I was in decent enough shape. Uh, at one of my job interviews for that job, they were just like, so do you know what a bar back does? And I was like, stocks, fridges and sweeps. And they're like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, what makes you think you can do it? Like, can you walk through a crowd of 400 people carrying three cases of beer. And I was like, well, I've walked through crowds of 1200 people while putting strings on a bass. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like if I can do one, I can do the other. Right. And, and while I was working there, this is, yeah, 2005, 2006, no, 2000. Yeah. It was 2006, 2007. I was far backing and then I started working my way up and doing other things. Um, but, uh, it was definitely, everything needs to be done right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone was very friendly that I worked with. It was, you know, really uh, constructive sort of situation to be in. It wasn't like I was the sort of bar back that you hear horror stories about people who like don't get tipped out and just get shouted at for eight straight hours. Right. right. Not like that for no, me. That's good. Um, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you brought up the uh, notion of like needing to be in shape to do this. Cause we haven't really talked about this on the show before, but not only, I mean, very clearly to do the bar back job, that has to be a thing, but almost now, to in, in the industry in general, if you're working at a high volume spot, uh, you do need to be in shape. I um, I got pretty fat during the time where I was working in a high volume spot because of many late nights doing cocaine and drinking shit tons of beer until nine in the morning. And it you could make you could literally t- literally tell the difference in like the level of my service of just getting around and also fucking how my body felt at the end of the day or when I woke up end of the night or when I woke up the next afternoon oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's rough and it's something that i'm i think it's really cool now i know we do a we've done a couple different programs through bartender atlas where uh whether it's movement classes or just outright like oh is that right 
you know, yeah, we, we've done a couple different things through that because yeah, I mean, I'm going to be 40 this year and mm -hmm. I just had an unwanted four months off and yes. then, uh, going back to work and everything's outdoors and it's a patio. So maybe there's a few more stairs and you're working on concrete instead of on whatever floor mat you had. And like, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that I know, you know, my first two weeks back, my lower back and my thighs and my knees were all killing me, even though for the four months I had off, I made a point of like running and biking and doing these like at home Nike app workouts and stuff. Yeah. But there's a big difference between being uh, like physically fit and hospitality fit. Yeah. Uh, hospitality yeah. fit is a different, very specific thing <laughs> uh, that maybe isn't even good for you. But. Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, Dan and I are closet uh, professional wrestling fans, and um, <laughs> we always hear about the difference between like um, being in shape and being in wrestling shape, like, oh, or ring shape, I guess yeah, they call it, shape, ring yeah, shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, it, it's very much applies to the service industry as well, right? Like, uh, you, there's a difference between just being in good shape, because like, I did the same thing. I was trying to run a lot during the COVID, so I didn't get all fat again, and the... But then coming back to work, like the first, literally the first night back and the next day, just you could feel it already. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's also walking on the cement, like you said, it's hard on your knees and back. So, yeah, mm. it's a lot. And so, yeah, uh, it's cool that there has been a lot more focus on it and, you know, different initiatives where different people are like, you know, don't drink for 48 hours every week. Mm. You know, and like as a bartender, it's just like, how hard is it to go two days without drinking? And then you're just like, wow, it's really it's fucking hard. hard. Yeah, <laughs> I'm and customer just offered to buy me a drink or wants me to like drink a glass of their wine or whatever it is. And you're always just like, no, no, not today. And you don't realize how often you're actually just saying yes to stuff because it, it's just part of the flow of what you're doing. And I think so, that's really interesting too to talk about because um, you're right. It, like, I, I often will try and take like a month detox or whatever or something like that. It is a really difficult thing to do if you're behind the bar every night, like. Customers are trying to buy you drinks. They're almost insulted if you don't want to do a drink, do a shot with them or whatever. Um, and then at the end of the night, you kind of fucking feel like you need a drink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things. Like, um, and, and it's just habits. And like anything else, you can form good habits. And uh, I don't know about you guys. I've definitely worked at places where there's no drinking allowed on shift. Mm. What? Um, which, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I have as well. Yeah, it's no yeah, fun, and that's totally fine. And I get it because there's a responsibility that goes along with it. And like, you don't know what the person that's going to walk up to your bar has been doing the rest of their day. They might have been drinking all afternoon, and they walk in, and you're serving them the last drink they're going to have of the night. But if you can't recognize that they've already been drinking all afternoon because you've been drinking all afternoon, <laughs> yeah. that, that doesn't help anybody. No. And that's sort of getting on the responsibility of it. So I totally understand dry bars. Sure. Um, uh, but on the other side of it, from a staff perspective, then you end up with people who are finishing work at 3.30 in the morning and are all like wound up and stressed out. And then, like you're saying, go out and drink warm Heineken and warm Jaeger until seven in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's no good for anybody either. And so I can't even look a bottle of Jaeger in the face anymore, man. That's <laughs> you know, the, Jaeger, the Jaeger cold brew is so good. Is it? It's, I don't know. I think it's the fucking name that's driving. Like, I, cold brew. like we always call Frenette the bartender's Jaeger now. So yeah, it's sure. like, yeah, but so I can handle the Frenette because it's got the mint in the yeah. back, you know, but the Jaeger, it's just a, it, uh, it triggers my gag reflex now. <laughs> it is also, I feel like that's a totally reasonable, uh, like a linear course of action for a bartender. <laughs> like if you bartended in the 90s and 2000s and Jaegermeister was your poison, by the time you're in like the mid 
2010s, the late 2010s, early 2020. It's like, no, I've, I've graduated from Jaeger to Burnett. Yeah. Even though they're both like essentially made the same way and it's really just branding. That yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's, that's like from a palette development perspective, yeah. it totally makes sense to go. And there's Jager. definitely a lot more going on in Fernet. And you can tell people who like, oh, we'll give out some Fernet and Sugar Run all the time. And the, you can tell the person who's never tried it before because there's oh, so yeah. many different flavors. It's got that, like the harshness. and But then it's got that beautiful mint flavor at the back end. And some yeah. people, it's just like, it's almost like you ask them to suck a lemon for... <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But it's also that thing, too, where like the first time you try it, you hate it. And then yeah. after the third one, you're like, yeah, I'd like to try that again. Yeah, it's like peated whiskey, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no one no one jumps into peated whiskey and be like, damn, I love that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Ashtray. Yeah, exactly. Well, and honestly, that you can say that about every form of alcohol. No one has ever tried al- any kind of alcohol from beer to wine to liquor for the first time and been like, damn, I love it. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we got a little off track there, but that's what we do on this show. The, <laughs> yeah, so you're working at the Drake, you're barbacking, and I'm assuming this is teaching you like a shit ton of, about time management in the bar industry. Yeah. Um, at what point do you transition to doing more serving or bartending? Uh, about a year and a half into being a bar back at the Drake. And the thing is, too, at that time when you got hired at the Drake as support staff, you were scheduled for basically anything. You were a food runner, you were a porter, uh, you were a bar back, you were a dining room assistant. Uh, but after the first you know month or two of working there, they really figure out what you excel at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did almost entirely bar backing shifts. Um, some food running shifts and stuff too. So you get to see all the operations of it and kind of, it's actually kind of handy because you got to know everybody. Whereas I'm positive that there were bartenders that worked at the Drake Hotel at that time whose shifts were always like 9 p.m. to 3 a.m., Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and like never met a kitchen guy, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, or like had no idea who the daytime hotel receptionist was, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. Um, so it was cool as support staff, especially in a building like that, because there are four different venues and whatever and kind of bouncing around. And then when I started working, getting bar shifts, a lot of them were sort of brunch bar shifts, which was, it's honestly, it's a great way to figure out how you position yourself behind a bar when you're the only one there, because mm-hmm. that's often the case when you're the brunch bartender. Right. Um, so I had worked out a thing though, like my schedule for a while. I can't remember how long it was because it was really hairy, where I would work uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, bar backing, and then come back in at 10 a.m. for brunch shift and work 10 till 4, and then maybe take off a couple hours and come back in at 7 o'clock to be the 7 o'clock bar back start again. Uh, And then do brunch. So I would do that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday I would do brunch, and then I'd have like Sunday, Monday off, or I would do one of the shifts that I had actually that I loved was the Monday night shift in the underground at the Drake Hotel. There was something called Elvis Mondays, which was essentially like a, a invite only open mic night. Oh, uh, okay. But <laughs> like if, if you got in touch with the promoter and he saw that you were serious, you could come and you'd play for a half hour, you know, 20 minutes or a half hour. Your sets were really short. So there'd be five or six local bands that I would sit and bartend those nights. And it was funny because those nights it was just like whatever bottle of beer is cheap is the thing that I was making. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't. It was uh, maybe 2009-ish. The Drake Hotel started really uh, paying attention to cocktails and making drinks and realizing it doesn't just need to be Jaeger and pints of beer. Mm. Um, or like, you know, something with lychee liqueur and 
Lou Curacao in it, you know, right. started paying <laughs> attention. Um, it was really cool. Two of the guys from employees only in, yeah, like 2007, 2008 came to the Drake and did a two day long all day training thing. Oh, uh, how did, like, how would that have been arranged? Uh, well, I think the owner of the Drake also had a spot in New York and was seeing places like milk and honey and employees only and yeah. angels there really starting to thrive uh-huh. and wanted to incorporate some of that into his hotel, um, which, you know, trying to change anything, especially once you're four or five years in and you're an established business, trying to shift your focus is it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was bumpy. Yeah. Um, but part of it was to have two of the guys who work at employees only owners. That's the thing with that bar is that the owners are all also employees. Um, at least at that point, I don't know anymore. They have like five locations now, but right. uh, Dushan Zarek and uh, Jay from employees only came up and did this two day long thing, brought up a couple old books and they're talking about classics and how you can just like make a quick shift on a classic cocktail that, you know, and all of a sudden it's a new and exciting and interesting drink. Uh, and that two days really made me think about, you know, at that point I was pretty sold and was pretty convinced that I just wanted to work in bars forever. But mm-hmm. in the way that those two guys explained it and like, starting to understand the history of where this profession, which uh, at times can be very noble and at other times can have you awake until seven in the morning drinking warm Jagger, uh, but understanding that there is a whole past and a whole history to it and knowing that it's, you know, uh, working in bars is not just every night are you just a, a part of your guest story, but in the realm of bartending, you are just part of an entire story. Yeah, and yeah. Really, that's, really that's starting to realize that. I really started uh, investing a lot of time and energy in books and trips and tasting different spirits and like saving money so that I could buy weird, you know, mezcal that I knew you had to do private orders of and like starting to figure things out that way. And that was for like 2009, 2010. I started paying real close attention to cocktails. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I, if I was a better host, I would remember the name of the book, but I'm not that good. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I read this book that traced the lineage of like, the cocktail, the sort of resurgence of the cocktail scene that yeah, started in uh, London and then moved to New York. I think you're talking about uh, a proper drink. That's it. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yes. Maybe? Yes. Yes. Amazing yeah. book. Anybody in the industry should t- totally check it out because it really yeah. traces like how the, in the resurgence of the cocktail scene, they um, it started in London and then sort of moved to New York with like bars like Milk and Honey and Employees Only and Death and Co and like all the big New York bars. But it, it really the really the scene really started in London and uh, kind of moved this way, right? And then and then once it hit New York, it's like Reaganomics trickle down effect all over fucking North America to the by now. And it it happens. It's a very slow trickle down. Like for instance. Toronto got on board, Montreal got on board, like us even slower trickle down to get into Kitchener Waterloo, like where my bars are, and um, or my bar, current, my current bar is. And um, yeah, it, like it, t- it took a long time to get there. And it takes a long time to also sort of get your community into what you're doing, like that now you're paying $18 plus for a drink, but there's a reason why you're paying that much for a drink, right? Yeah. And like, there's a few reasons. And, and, uh, I mean, unfortunately money is the thing that you have to explain to everybody. And like, I don't know, I grew up with, I was a poor kid growing up for sure. So the idea of paying, like even now going to cocktail conferences or going on brand trips and stuff that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, even then I'll see stuff and be like, Oh my God, someone's charging $27 for this martini. What the hell is going on? But then it's like, 
that's just the trigger reaction that I think yeah. we're all conditioned to think. Sure. But then when you actually consider everything that goes into it, it's like, okay, so even let's talk like 10 years ago in Canada, you know, let's say Kitchener, for instance, everyone is so used to beer in Kitchener, Oktoberfest forever, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, trying to convince someone that would pay six bucks, six fifty, you know, for, for a pint of some like cool new local beer. Mm-hmm. Alcohol content in that is significantly lower than what you're getting yep. from something as standard as like a, a Boulevardier, say. Sure. Um, and it's not until you explain to someone, it's like, how much would you pay for a Ryan Ginger? Six bucks. Okay. So that's 12 for a double, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, this drink has three and a half ounces of booze in it. Right. I know. Yeah. And it's I, the and hardest I'm, thing to explain. Yeah. And I'm giving it to you for $13 instead of eighteen fifty. Yeah. So like... You know, and, yeah. and like that's it for just explaining like uh, a very standard. That's a very linear and simple way of explaining it to someone that doesn't understand. That's without considering, you know, the four hours it took you to develop exactly the ratio of rosemary you want in this syrup, so that when you cook it down for exactly a half hour is exactly the right amount of time, and it keeps in the fridge for a week. And mm-hmm. like that's without explaining any of that. Yeah, to, like the very straight like. An ounce of booze costs this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. It. I know. I have the same problem with like we, we do only nine ounce uh, wine pours uh, mm. and trying to explain like why a glass of wine might cost $25. Like, yeah. well, it's nine fucking ounces of wine and it's not it's not Peller it's not space. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm. it's, it's hard, but I think it's going to I mean, it's, it's probably a lot easier in Toronto. Certainly it's the smaller the town is, the harder that is to get across because yeah like it's just anytime you try and bring a new idea to a small town you're you're swimming upstream and it's the same thing in you know any any big city as well you know and through bartender atlas we've traveled to see all kinds of different bars and all kinds of ideas and like you know uh there's a bar in montreal called el pequeño Mm -hmm. which is spanish for the small one uh and the capacity of that bar is eight or ten people i think it's one bartender there's four different Cuban inspired drinks and like, that's all you can get. And the people that walk in there are like, Ooh, can I get a chair? And they no, we don't have any chairs. Like right. you're, actually, you're only coming in here for one while you're waiting to go downstairs to the other bar, or go around the corner to whatever, while you're waiting for dinner. Like the, the idea that like, yeah, it's not a bar where you just sit down and read a menu for 10 minutes and wait. And then they pour you more water and they yeah. relight candle and all this stuff. It's like, no man, I'll make you a mojito. I'll make you a daiquiri. And then, uh, you know, have a good night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's even, that's even Montreal. I'm trying to do a thing right now in Toronto, uh, called bitter days inspired by trips to Barcelona and Italy. And even like a lot of Mexican stuff where it's like the same idea, pop in, have one on your way to dinner, just after dinner on your way home from work. You're not ready to see the kids yet. Have a Campari soda. Okay, cool. Have a good night. Right. Um, and it's just funny to see. I mean, Luckily, the location of Bitter Days is right in Parkdale in Toronto. There's enough people walking around. And because of, you know, the place where I have been working the last four years, Chanticleer, which is a tiny little cool restaurant because of places like Pretty Ugly, which recently closed down. People are a little more familiar. Oh, my God. Pretty Ugly closed? I didn't even know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Landlord plus COVID equals yeah. no more Pretty Ugly. Right. Um, that sucks. Again, the very short version of it. But uh, but people in Parkdale are a little more uh, welcome and amenable to new drinking ideas. But even still, like Bitter Days has only been open. I know this is airing in a while, but Bitter Days is only brand new. I just started at the beginning of September. And uh, already there's people who are like, what have you got with tequila? And I'm like, I have no tequila. 
okay, yeah. so let's have a daiquiri. And it's like, I don't have any juice. <laughs> yeah. I it's hard to get across. Have. So, like, okay, explain that concept a little further for me, if you don't mind. Like, what like what exactly are, do you have? You just have bitters there? Basically. Uh, oh, wow. That's amazing. Not, not really. Uh, so, okay. if uh, So, Jess and I, after uh, Toronto Cocktail Conference, the first year we did it, we went to Barcelona and stayed there for nine days and kind of did that on purpose. I find a lot of times when you're traveling, you try to do as many cities and yeah. areas as possible. We wanted to stay there for a whole week and a half, sort of actually start to get a vibe of what the city feels like. I got stuck in Barcelona for four months for two weeks. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so and wandering around and saying like, okay, so we're going to go to dinner at this place, but dinner is not till like eight, but it's four. What do you want to do in the meantime? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll just slowly walk down there. Oh, this spot has like a table out front and a list of vermouth, I guess. Yeah. Give me one of those. Give me one of those. Have one, maybe some soda on it. And just like, okay, yeah, cool. There's your bill. Walk another six blocks, see another vermouth spot, whatever. So sort of inspired by that idea that uh, really the casualness of it and with everything happening with COVID and, you know, whether you can have people inside and how many people and like really going out right now. uh, I know I'm not entirely comfortable going out and sitting indoors somewhere eating and drinking and having the opportunity where like you can go and meet up with a friend at five in the afternoon, have an Aperol spritz, hang out for 20 minutes without having to be indoors without having to commit to spending however much you're going to spend on having a whole dinner somewhere. Mm-hmm. Just like an idea that you can leave the house, go and do something to break up your day, especially with, who knows, like people are working from home all the time now and people aren't making as much money. And so the idea of just going and spending 20 bucks instead of committing to a whole ass meal, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a couple of reasons that I thought it was a good time and a good place to put this idea out. That's a great idea, honestly. That's awesome. I mean, I would like to take credit for it, but, you know, there's the whole continent of Europe that came (laughs) (laughs) out. If you you bring a new idea to a new um, city, though, that you can take credit for it. That's what what I think. (laughs) The other thing, too. Everything comes from somewhere, right? Yeah. The other thing, too, that I'm doing with Bitter Days is that by no means is my list of Apertivi and Amari and Vermouth exhaustive. Like, I really only have... 20 or 30 bottles that I can pour from. Oh, uh, okay. Like, I'm not trying to be, like, the Italian bar. Or right, the right, right. And it's bar. It's mostly just, like, this is the easiest way for you to have a drink that isn't a shot of 45% whiskey. So, like, I'm not sending you on your way. I'm not there to get you pissed. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Like, well. the, point, the point of the spot is really just to, like, chill out for a second, take it, maybe, like, reflect on your day, hear me tell some stupid story about whatever, and then go on your way. Right. That's yeah. a great idea. I, I wish we could yeah. pull something like that off in Kitchener, but, you know, wish in one hand, shit in the other, and see which one fills up first. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it just takes a while. Maybe that's something... I've always wanted to try and do a... Um, like um, like an Amaro bitter vermouth, vermouth-type bar in, like, as a concept, where you're doing, like, Amaro flights and vermouth flights mm-hmm. and... But uh, I went to a cool spot in Burlington, Vermont, that did that, and it was amazing. But, like, I, yeah. I, again, the smaller the town, the harder it is to get a new concept going. So Yeah, and, I mean, it's also something where you got to deal with – you got to know who you're making this for. And, like I said, I'm fortunate that I can do it because I'm doing it literally on the sidewalk in Parkdale. Um, right. Because we have the Cafe Tio thing that's happening where the city has said you can have patios 
even if you didn't have patios before, mm. take up a couple parking spaces. Uh, so we're taking advantage of that program. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's it's uh, as a bar owner who it took a really long time for me to get my both of my liquor licenses that I've in both bars that I owned. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of bitterness on <laughs> how quickly they but it needs to happen. I'm really glad they're doing it. Right now, they're giving out fucking liquor license like Oprah gives out whatever she gives out. Yeah, yeah, you get a liquor license and you get a liquor license. Yeah. But uh, but it's good. I mean, the industry needs it, right? It's the only way we're going to survive. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's. Uh, uh, do you want to touch a little bit on the cocktail competition or you want to just jump right into Bartender the, Atlas? The, well, okay. So, the thing with the conference is that it's just part of Bartender Atlas. Bartender okay. Atlas is the umbrella under which everything else I, I do seems to exist. Um, so yeah, uh, Bartender Atlas itself came from the idea, and my wife Jess and I founded Bartender Atlas together. Um, mm. She has been running her own photography business for 17 years, and so she's very aware of how to build a website and what images need to look like and how social media works and how to promote uh, a small business. She also knows the business end of it and accounting and all that stuff. I'm just some loudmouth that worked at a bunch of moderately successful bars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Campagnolo was an amazing learning opportunity for me. That was the first place where I got to run my own bar program. And then I worked at, uh, I did a couple little spots as well. Okay, uh, before you go too far yeah. on this, I just want to jump in there. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that because we, we try and ask our guests on the show, like, what do you think goes into creating a good bar program, a good cocktail list? What are the, what do you, what do you, what are the, what do you need to have? Well, first thing, I mean, I have been very lucky. Most of the spots I've worked are like 30 to 70 seat restaurants. Mm. Uh, and usually the chef has a concept and an idea for what the menu is going to be. And so if you want to follow the chef's cue, that's always the best way to go as far as creating a full theme and making sure that the drinks you're making match the food you're serving. That's if you're dealing with restaurants. Right. Um, as far as just making a bar program, I mean, the next most important thing is making sure that whatever your guest is coming there for, you have that. And you're looking after the guests that you have. And yeah, you can train guests in a certain way. Uh, but for the most part, you want to make sure that you're looking after your, your guest first, you know? So is that... In your opinion, is that like having a disparate list where you're using a lot of different types of spirits or like what, how does that work, say, if you're trying to do a concept? Like, for instance, at my place, we do rum, right? So um, when you're talking about like giving the guests what they want, because I, we struggle with this as well. Like we, like we're a rum bar, have a rum cocktail, right? Or if like you're a tiki bar or something like that, or if you're a tequila bar, generally all your cocktails are going to be with that spirit. Is, is, your, is it your opinion that you also need to branch out a little bit, even if you are trying to do a specific focus? Or um, I think that rum is uh, really cool just because you run sugar rum. Uh, I think <laughs> um, rum is an amazing diaspora of spirits as to what like sugarcane spirits uh, encompass. You know, like there is so much rum out there being made in so many different ways on different islands and in different countries that like uh it's like i get offended because i'm a nerd who has read a million things about rum but when someone is just like yeah i can't drink rum it's like oh i know like I, it drives me nuts i was like when people come to my bar it's like i don't like rum i'm like would you just try yeah. <laughs> just try it well, i had one real bad night in college it's like yeah if you <laughs> shots of anything you're yeah. gonna have a bad drinking night. fucking captain morgan white or whatever like you know even still like 
if someone serves me a Captain Morgan White with Coke, I'm going to drink it. It'll be yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to ruin your life to drink a rum and Coke. No, but, I know. Um, rum specifically is a cool idea because there, because there is such a wild, you know, there's really light, uh, you know, Cuban style rums specifically. Oh, yeah. They're so light that like, mm-hmm. if you put lime juice and mint on it, like, yeah, man, I could have just put vodka in here and you wouldn't know the difference. Yes. Depending on, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so like I, so any list I've ever run, uh, I condense it. The second that I take over a spot, I'm always like, you don't really need more than, you don't need more than 15 drinks. Right. Uh, and, but it's nice to have at least eight. Yes. If, if you're going to be a cocktail forward, if you're trying to make money from your cocktails, that's sort of how I think of it. There was one place I worked, it was basically, um, it was rock lobster. It doesn't exist anymore. But uh, the owner, when he was opening it, he used to work as a liquor rep. He and I knew each other. He asked me if I could just sort of set up the program for his brick-and-mortar spot. And he was like, basically, I want to be, like, cranking the hip and playing a hockey game and serving lobster rolls. Uh, And I need drinks that fit that mold that are, like, cheap, easy to put out. I just want to make sure that we have cocktails because people are interested in cocktails. Mm -hmm. But I was like, okay. Um, Thinking about it from that perspective, it's like, okay, so it's going to be you know the raw bar is a big thing uh they do like a lobster roll lobster mac and cheese very like seafoody things and trying to think about what flavors go with that and so i had something that was like a martinez but i had infused the gin with dill or something along those lines so that would be like complimentary i made a horseradish shrub and then involved that in a margarita sort of thing so like you put horseradish on your oysters right so uh, there's horseradish in your drink and you get that little bit of spice and you know um kind of going with the concept of what people are showing up at that restaurant and expect. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. I have a couple of questions um, uh, along these lines. First of all, you mentioned like how, oh, that guy from Rock Lobster or whatever was like, oh, people are interested in cocktails. I need cocktails. Um, do you feel that like there are bars, do, do all bars have to serve cocktails now? Is that no. where we are? Or is it just like, or if you're like a sports bar that just does beer, like sometimes I walk into some of these bars and it's like literally a sports theme bar. They're doing fucking OV on tap or whatever the hell it is. But then they have like this like token cocktail list. Yeah. And like, is that necessary? I mean, I, I think it's fine if, like, uh, hmm. like I think it's fine if, as long as it's done well and the staff mm-hmm. knows what they're doing. Like, right. yeah, man, I, you know, if you go to a sports bar, everyone's already drinking Irish whiskey. Put a Tipperary on the list. Sure. You know? Okay. You, go, you know, or like, you know, Manhattan's and Tipperary's and sidecars and. and but but then do you, do you need, do you need the make. fucking list? Like just if just be able to make it right. Yeah, that one. Right. Yeah. Of yeah. Course, you know, and then is it worth having a liter of fresh lime juice ready to go every day if you're only selling four drinks, you know? Right. And, that, and so, so I, I mean more like a list, like, of signature cocktails. You know no. what I mean? Like, no, it's, not, I, it's not necessary, right? No. And further to that, this is, like, something that I, I try to practice myself all the time. It's like, if I go someplace and they do have a cocktail list, uh, I make it a point to drink something, order something off the cocktail list, because that means that someone has taken the time to actually develop house cocktails. Mm-hmm. And I respect that process. And I understand that like, Hey, yeah, you took a while. I'm going to assume you tasted this drink with like three different rums or, you know, two different gins or whatever yeah. it is to come up with this house cocktail that you want. And I'll order one of them. 
And like my general rule is like, if I like it, I'll take 10 minutes sipping it. And if I don't, I'll just crush it and then just order a daiquiri. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a mojito or a, or yeah. a brownie or just a bottle of beer, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah. Always, if someone's going to take the time to do a house-made cocktail list, then order something that's on the list. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like, to, at least, like, I, I mean, I have my go-to drinks. I generally, I'm a wino. I'll, I'll generally gravitate towards wine if i'm going to a bar but if they have a cocktail list i'll check one out like just check one out you know yeah, does somebody sure. put some time into that and like you're right if it's not good now you know yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. and yeah. uh i'll stick the bottle of beer from here on yeah you got to gather the evidence yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah um, oh. so no i don't think it's important for everybody to have a cocktail list it's nice to have but yeah. no i don't think i don't think it needs to be a focus of every business model Right. And I, it's almost becoming that way because people have become, I, I almost feel like it's oversaturation with cocktails now mm -hmm. to the point where bars that have, have no business having a signature cocktail list because they're not good at it and it's not what their general clientele wants anyway, are trying to do it because they think it's necessary. Yeah. And if you as a bartender haven't taken the time to practice like holding your jigger level when you're pouring, <laughs> then like don't start trying to come up with your own drink. Like there's a lot of <laughs> like, yeah. don't, don't start, you know, uh, backpacking ginger and pineapple together with apple cider vinegar and brown sugar and two feeding it for four hours so that you can have this shrub that you've made. If like, you know, you don't know how to make a Satan's whiskers cocktail. Yeah. Point, like, I think that's, I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up because it's like, you do need the staff to execute the plan like and if and if you don't have the training of being a bartender like uh, like a quote-unquote bartender and not just like a barkeep or however you want to say it like yeah. a bartender then what do you what business do you have creating a signature cocktail list right like if you don't have the basics down you shouldn't be doing it yeah um and that isn't i mean also that's hypocritical because there's definitely things that i've tasted some weird liqueur before and been like, whoa, I'm going to make something amazing with this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just get real, just yeah. get real, real excited about it. And I definitely have like jumped into things feet first. Of course, this is coming from like, you know, 39 year old man saying it now, but like 39 year old saying this to 27 year old me would have been like, you know, the 27 year old me just would have been like, man, Shut the fuck up. If you tasted this, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but let's get the skills down, right? Like, for yeah. instance, like, I read a book about surgery one time in the 1930s. I don't think anyone's handed me a scalpel and telling me to go to fucking work on them. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, know? Like, and honestly, like, in a, in a very, like, of the moment part of that conversation, I saw someone shared something the other day where it's like, uh, especially right now, just because you're reading books and articles and watching webinars and stuff about anti-racist work does not mean all of a sudden you're cured from racism. You're exactly. Yes. Like you just said, you read a book about brain surgery. It doesn't mean you can do brain surgery. If I read a book about a mountain climber, it doesn't mean I know how to climb a mountain. No, please don't you do know? that, people. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and like, obviously not the same thing because anti-racist work is a systemic fucking sure. yeah. issue that is beyond anything. No, but, no, no. But I get your by, point, the, yeah. by the same token, if you're going to go out there and call yourself uh, award-winning, amazing head mixologist and blah, 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 you should be able to back that up. Right. And, and just because you've read the books doesn't mean that you've necessarily mastered anything. That's right. I know. It's like a, That is a it, very it, tenuous grasp between those two things, but it just 
reminded me of it. Yeah, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours theory, right? right? Yeah. You can't yeah. fucking be smart at something until you put in the goddamn work. Like you can yeah. like you can watch a YouTube video, you can be a smart person and think I can pick that up, but you got to put in the hours, man. Like it yeah. really is in in any craft, right? Yeah. And and, and bartending is a craft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, craft the the argument of bartending being a craft or an art is always one that I love where it's like Sure. So it's an art in that you're creating something for people to appreciate and everyone's appreciation of it is going to be slightly different no matter what. But the craft part of it is that, okay, now do that same thing 75 other times tonight. That's right. It has to be exactly the same each time, regardless of what the appreciation is. That's so well put. That is the fucking craft of it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, a carpenter can build you an amazing house, but if they can't do it a second time, are they a carpenter or did they just like get lucky no yeah then they're aha yeah exactly <laughs> they're aha. yes very good <laughs> okay right. let's yeah. uh okay i want to talk a little bit uh, i wanted to touch briefly on your entry like at some point you started entering cocktail competitions um what what made you decide to jump into that uh tell me about your accomplishments in that field and then we'll move on to talking about bartender atlas yeah for sure so uh i first of all have won only two cocktail competitions of probably, I would say, a hundred that I've been in. Sure, they're hard uh, to win. It's subjective. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and a big part of me doing that, uh, and like you figure out who you are as a bartender and what you excel at and what you're good at, whatever. I can talk to a room full of people. Uh, I worked as a brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin for a while. I'm real happy to teach people about the history of gin, what cocktails come from and whatever. And so my presentations were always like pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, my drinks, because of just like how I interact when I'm on the bar, I'm really feeding into the people I'm talking to. And sometimes you know your judges and sometimes you don't. And sometimes objectively your drink is just awesome. And other times it's such a very specific idea that maybe the judge isn't in the mood for it that night. Right. Really learn what I really learned from doing cocktail competitions is making sure that you're precise in everything you're doing and that there's a purpose to what you're presenting. And I even think about this on nights where I've had to crank out like, 250 cocktails on a bar thinking of making every drink as though you're in that competition. And it has to be the best version of that drink because whoever that person is, that's going to get it is the one that's paying your bills. They're the one that like is visiting your establishment. They trust you to provide them with a good night out. So every drink you make has to be the best drink you're making. Wow. That's very well put. And that's very interesting take on it. Like, and, and, I mean, that's cool that those competitions kind of taught you that, you know, like that. I mean, it also is amazing when you get a free trip to Barbados. Sure. (laughs) That is not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So like uh, explain to me just even that part of it for listeners who don't understand how these competitions sometimes work. Like how, what is the process from you entering a competition to you getting a free trip to Barbados? Yeah. So there's, there's a, a bunch of different layers to it and depends on the brand and it depends on the caliber of the competition. Sometimes it's cute local stuff. Sometimes it's laid out so that like a bartender works the whole service and then is judged based on watching how they work all night. Sometimes it's just a matter of filling out a form online, taking a picture of a drink that you made and sending it in. Mm. Uh, Usually after taking a picture and sending it in, there would be, I mean, who knows how this is going to go now, but there would be a, a competition where there's the whatever, five or 10 or 15 or 40 competitors are all in a room at the same time, making their drinks for a panel of judges. That panel of judges has a scoring sheet 
And again, that changes based on what the competition is and what the brand wants and whatever, or if there's the theme to the competition. Uh, you present your drink. Sometimes right then and there, they'll announce who the winner is. Sometimes uh, that happens at a local level. So say I win a competition for Toronto, cool. You and the Vancouver winner and the Montreal winner and the Calgary winner and the Kitchener winner and the Halifax winner are all going to be entered into a draw or, you know, or the eight of you are going to go to whatever city and make your drink again for different judges. And then they're going to decide. So there's a couple different ways that you get there, but essentially um, cocktail competitions are a lot of time, uh, just a promotional tool for a liquor brand. Right. That's the idea is to get bartenders using their product and thinking about how to use their product in creative ways. Um, there's the immediate bump of every bartender that's entering buys a bottle of it. And so you look really good for the month that it's been announced. Uh, (laughs) And then the idea is you make a drink that is so outstanding and then you become sort of a, uh, I mean, there are competitions where you literally win the job of brand ambassador, Mm. uh, but then, then there's other jobs where you're almost like part-time brand ambassador for them. You won this thing, you got sent to the distillery, you saw how the whole thing works. And now the next time that we're doing this competition you get to be one of the judges for it because you right. know the process of this so well. Yeah, it's a very uh, like uh, incestuous or symbiotic relationship between the liquor companies and the and the bartenders and bars or whatever. Like it kind of, these the funny thing is I, I I know there's a lot of negativity surrounding some of these competitions because people are like, oh, it's rigged and it's like so it's too subjective or whatever. But at the end of the day, and and some people just think it's silly, but like. At the end of the day, it kind of helps everybody. Well, and again, like I was saying, my takeaway from doing as many competitions as I did is that it's a way for me to familiarize myself with a product, um, whether it's something I already think I know everything about, if it's like Canadian whiskey or gin or bourbon, mm. or if it's something that I'm not as familiar with, if it's you know Pisco or Cachaca or something like that, where like, yeah, I don't know as much about that spirit. And so by tasting it and playing with it and putting whatever fruit or whatever spice or whatever herb with it, you sort of taste different things and you can really teach yourself, you make yourself your own expert um, right. on these things through involving yourself in these competitions. And then again, thinking about bringing it back to when you're actually on a bar, because let's be honest, on the bar is where the most important part for a bartender is when you're working your actual shift. And if you practice these competitions, trying to do everything perfectly, and then you're on a bar still trying to do everything perfectly every time, that's going to have a great impact on everyone around you because you're putting literally your best foot forward. That's right. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, that just gets transferred to the guest. And that's what we're fucking doing here. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's I just great. want everyone to have a good time, man. Yeah. Well, that's your <laughs> job, right? Like that is the job. Like I, I, and I mean, we've talked about this a bunch on the show as well. Like people can get a big head about like winning a competition or even being in a competition. But at the end of the day, we're making drinks and we're delivering them. Right. Like, and and we're trying to create a good atmosphere and a good time for the guests. Like that's Mm -hmm. the job. And what's in the glass is important to that guest having a good night. Yeah. It's not the only thing. Uh, A million years ago, some guy that I was working with, was just like, yeah, man, mixology at best is 20% of bartending. And that's like, if you're at a high-end cocktail bar, it's 20% yeah. of bartending. If you're yeah. in a restaurant, mixology is like way down the list of what's yeah, important yeah. about right. 10 Yeah, not even close. And yeah. I think we all got to recognize that. You know? uh, uh, okay, uh, let's talk about Bartender Atlas. I'm, I'm super interested in what you're doing with this. Uh, just walk us through 
the concept, how you came up with it, what you're hoping to do with it. Just go. Yeah. So uh, I was mentioning before, Jess, my wife and I came up with Bartender Atlas together, um, taking all of her skills from running her own photography business for the last decade and a half or more. Uh, whether it's website building or image creation or social media stuff, she is a fucking monster when it comes to all that. She's killer. Uh, I, on the other hand, am pretty good at talking in front of people because, again, I was on the radio, so I understand how broadcasting works and, like, speaking in sound bites and all of these things. So I've been lucky enough that I've done a handful of morning shows and then The Social, which is nationally broadcast uh, in Canada. It's, like, Canada's version of The View, I guess, although yeah. I don't think... I don't think anyone on the show would appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, like once every few months, I get asked to come and make drinks on a daytime TV show. Right, um, nice. so, so I'm decent with presenting. And because I had worked, you know, run programs at a place called Campagnolo and like I was saying, Rock Lobster. And then I worked at Bar Isabel when it first opened for the first two years it was there, which depending on who you talk to changed the landscape of Canadian dining forever. I think that's probably accurate. <laughs> uh, but like my angle of it too was like, yeah, I want everyone coming in here to have a good time. But also that was the most involved cocktail list that I've had to make that many drinks that fast. Uh, it was, that place was crazy the first two years I worked there. But mm -hmm. I learned a ton of stuff working with all that and having access to like being on all those lists where everyone wants to come in, it means that liquor reps are coming to talk to you. And when a new product comes in, they're interested in having you involved in it because they know you're busy. They know that you're going to sell it to guests. Guests are then excited about their brand. They buy things at the liquor store. Everybody makes more money and everybody is happy. And that's, you know, the very like uh, uh, idealistic version of how that all works. Um, and then I worked, I left Bar Isabel and I worked as a brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin. And in 2014, 2015, in my brain, I had done what I was going to do as a bartender. And I, in my brain, was happy to just keep working at Bar Isabel forever because this is great and I get along with everybody and the guests are great and whatever. And then the Hendrix opportunity came my way. I really started thinking about it and how uh, staying at Bar Isabel would have been great, but... Um, this seemed like a, a career move that's still within the industry. And it was still a lot of stuff I was interested in. And as a bartender that had been doing it for that long, I was like, yeah, I know what a brand ambassador does. I have brand ambassador friends. This is great. And I took the job and it took me maybe three weeks before I realized that I knew about 20% of what a brand ambassador did and what they were responsible for. Uh, and the more I got into the job, the more I realized it just wasn't really the angle for me. Um, and realized that I was happier when I was behind a bar getting people drinks and uh, so I left the brand ambassador job, but then I was, like I was saying, back behind a bar, uh, managing a spot called the Harvard Room, which that was a that was a little blowing a kiss, RIP to Harvard Room. Uh, I was working there and the owner- Another victim. Uh, yeah, well, the Harvard Room, Harvard Room closed down while I was working there. I swear oh, okay. it was not my fault. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I was back behind the bar and it was something that I was comfortable doing and I knew how to do and I felt like I was- you know, maybe not like the greatest bar manager in the world, but I felt like I was pretty good at it, supported my staff, had a cool creative list and kept the uh, legacy going of this place that had been open for eight or nine years at that point. Uh, but in doing that, I realized that I was back to doing something I already knew what to do. And Jess and I, my wife started talking about like, okay, so like, what are we doing then? You're back in this job and you clearly, I'm one of those people that needs to always be doing something. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bartender Atlas is what came out of it. Um, the idea being that we travel a lot, 
Jess especially has a real travel bug. And once her and I got together eight years ago now, we started traveling a lot together. And so anytime we're going to Mexico City or Melbourne or, you know, wherever, I would, because I was a nerd, look up 100 best bars, going to Melbourne, we need to go to this place, this place, this place, this place. Oh, we're going to Sydney. We need to go to these four places. We're going to Mexico City. You got to check out this place, whatever. Um, and looking at all these lists and getting all these recommendations, you know, even New York, Boston, Chicago, whatever. But a lot of times you go to that bar and, you know, I'm just some six foot tall white guy with tattoos and I just look like whatever normal patron coming in ordering a drink. And what really ended up setting the best bars apart from the less than best bars that are still on that list is the interactions with the bartenders and really having that realization that, yeah, man, my sidecar tastes delicious. The music playing is great. Um, you know, my glass of water is always topped up, but the bartender has looked at me twice and like, you know, just kind of like, yeah, and like is totally disinterested, but then hanging out with someone at the other end of the other end of the bar. And so we wanted to create Bartender Atlas to really celebrate the bartenders, the people who have spent all this time figuring out how to make the best drink for you and really want to engage with you and really want to talk about what that is. And like we were saying before, it doesn't need to be some dorky mixologist. You know, if your favorite classic cocktail is a Long Island iced tea, you are welcome on Bartender Atlas. Mm. If your job is pouring shots of wild turkey and pints of Molson Canadian, please be on Bartender Atlas as long as you're actually engaged and interested in being a bartender. Uh, so, what, so that's that's kind of like that's the very like one paragraph version of it. Okay, uh, yeah. I have a couple questions. Uh, yeah. So first of all, um, what's the? Okay, so I think what you're doing is amazing. It's a, I, I wholly support it. But what is the? I get what you're saying, where it's like okay, focus on the bartender, but to what end? Like, what is the? So like we were saying, based on our traveling, like I have, I have people in my brain, characters that I've created that Bartender Atlas is going to be for. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's say like some, some uh, woman named Jen works for IBM and has a conference that she needs to go to in San Francisco. But she's never been to San Francisco. She doesn't know anybody there. Uh, it's going to be a bunch of coworkers. It might be awkward, whatever. Bartender Atlas, Google. Bartender Atlas, San Francisco. There's a list of bartenders. Oh, there's, you know, Ethan is into Star Trek and antique furniture and, oh. and collecting stamps. Oh, you know what? My husband collects stamps. I'm going to go sit at Ethan's bar and I actually have something to, something in common with this person. I see. I'm going to have a cocktail. I'm going to have a beer, whatever, and actually like interact with the bartender. Sorry, oh. Siri just started talking to me for no reason on my phone. <laughs> You've been ignoring her for too long, man. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, so the idea is that it's really, again, if you know the bartender that you're dealing with, you sort of have a background and an idea of what sort of place you're going to and what you can expect, at least to a certain extent. So would you say it was like for the guest who kind of wants to go to a bar and talk to the bartender? A little bit. It doesn't necessarily need to be that, though. It's really just uh, so that you know what to expect from a given bartender. From a given bartender. Because, like, there's bartenders on the site that totally are like, yeah, I'm known for being real grumpy, one-word answers, but I'll make you the best old-fashioned you've ever had. And it's like, yeah, you know that's, what? That's me, Josh. I just want to sit at the bar and dick around <laughs> on my phone. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go sit at this guy's bar because he's just going to let me sit around and dick around on my phone. You know? Right. Yeah, you know, leave me alone. It, just like, yeah, that's yeah. The idea is that you get an idea of, like, or if someone's like, yeah, my favorite spirit in the world is tequila. I know everything there is about tequila. And it's like, well, I'm in the mood for a tequila drink. 
and I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, I know what bar I'm going to. Ah, that's very interesting. So what, have you gotten any feedback where somebody has been like, checked your site out and then gone to the bar like the motherfucker wasn't working? Well, look, with that, <laughs> that'll happen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, no, no one reaches out to really let us know that. We, yeah. like, honestly, the biggest hurdle that we have is keeping bartenders up to date because, as you guys know, bartenders will work, work a place for six, eight months, a year. And yeah, then it's a transient profession. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm constantly sending out reminders, just being like, let Updated. us know if you moved. Let us know if you got a new haircut. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because I was like, I didn't really, I don't think I really knew or had embraced the concept yet. Like when I talked to you originally, it was like, oh yeah, I'll sign up for it. And then um, I sent a, I, I hate getting my picture taken. So I was like, I sent a picture like, where my head was not in the picture. Yeah. And your wife got back to me right away. I was like, ah, we need to actually a picture of your face. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and now you're explaining to me, I'm like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work if they can't recognize you when they get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, we're four and a half years in now. And we have about 1,500 bartenders literally everywhere. Um, even like, there's a crazy, like, cocktail scene in Nairobi, which I wasn't really expecting. There's, um, you know, we have people all over like Australia, Mexico, and Canada and the U S seem to be our strongest points. Um, part of yeah, that. You have a lot of people from Mexico. Yeah. Know, like, yeah. Yeah. Jess and I have spent a lot of time in Mexico. Okay. Uh, it's honestly, it's the best country. And I know media tells us to be afraid of it, but like Mexico rules. Um, mm. So yeah, we do very well uh, in in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. I feel like part of that is just concentric circles too. Is like sure. they're all closest to Toronto. And then we've spent some time and did some events in Melbourne a few years ago, and visited Sydney and Brisbane and Cairns, and went up to the Daintree. And so we have some some good friends in Australia as well. But that also means that we have people in Japan, we have people in China, we have people in like literally all over the place. There's one girl. This is the coolest shit in the world for me. And I don't know if her like mission has ended yet or not, but she's from LA and uh, she is a scientist when she's not tending bar. And so she is in Antarctica, but she is the bartender in Antarctica right now. Oh, wow. Uh, so we literally have a bartender on every continent. I know. That's amazing. You told me that story when you came to Sugar and I was like, I got to get this woman on the podcast. And you were like, well, she has no internet access. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I, I can try and connect you, but it was like, and I fully, like, it was some cheesy thing where we're part of a similar, like a Facebook group or something for bartenders. And she said something about how she's going to Antarctica, but everything you bring, you have to bring back. Like you can't leave. There's no, there's no garbage dump on Antarctica. You know? Right. So everything you bring, you have to bring back. And so she was talking about things that she could use uh, to run a bar, but with the smallest packaging and least waste and least weight possible. And she posted on this group. And I fully, like, as a stranger, just, like, seeming thirsty as hell, was like, you need to sign up for the site. Oh, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And she was like, you know what? Your site seems pretty cool. I'm in. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, your site is cool, and I'm glad you're doing this. Uh, tell me, a, uh, you also told me a story when you came to Sugar Run about um, uh, how, like, kind of your experience with one of the best bars in, like, uh, I can't, I can't even remember. You're gonna have to. I don't know if you remember telling me the story. Oh, I know, like, I know what story you're talking about. Okay, yeah, just go. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't name the bar. Okay, just, yeah. okay, that's, yeah. Don't we don't have to name the bar, but it was, it, it was it was it was a high rated bar. 
yes, it was yeah. one of those one of those great bars on one of those great lists. That mm. uh, again, I show up and I'm pretty much incognito. I'm not, you know, no one knows who I am. It's not like you know Dale DeGroff or whatever walks into a bar. Everybody knows who that guy is, but or like Charlotte Boise or something. Right. Um, I'm I'm relatively anonymous. Um, and we tried to do that with Bartender Atlas, too, is the idea is, like, it's about the bartenders. It's not about Jess and I running it. It's about the bartenders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but went into this bar. I have gone to this bar twice. Once was two years earlier and showed up with a friend that worked for Bacardi. And we went in and got rock star treatment. The shots going around, bottle service. So do you want to keep a copy of the menu? Super friendly, great. And I was like, oh, best bar in the world. I get it. Mm-hmm. Like. No, it wasn't the best part, but like, but on the list, it was on the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two years later, go back in with two different friends. Yeah, what do you want? Uh, I guess we'll have four daiquiris. I guess, yeah, fine. And then one of the guys I was with, his drink was set down. He turned around, was talking, and knocked over his drink. And the bartender's like, "You guys got to go." And we're like. Sorry, what? He's like, your friend's drunk. He spilled his drink. You guys, you pay your bill, you're out. And I was like, this is a radically different yeah. thing than it was two years ago. And part yeah. of that comes from, you know, a bar maybe having a big head about who they are. Right. And if you show up with a brand rep, then yeah, man, we're going to look after you. But something that I keep thinking about in every bartender I've ever worked with, trying to train them that everybody is a VIP. Yes. You know, there's no such thing as a VIP in a restaurant. Everybody is a VIP. Everyone deserves the best night out. And, and uh, yeah. And I think that this is like what's great about your site and what you're trying to do is that like what you're bringing to people's attention is that the bar can be amazing. Like literally like perfect music, perfect vibe, perfect aesthetics. Um, the food is amazing. The cocktails are amazing. But if you're getting shitty fucking disinterested service from your bartender then that will ruin your night just as fast as all the other things one of the servers that i've been working with at chanticleer for the last four years calls it american apparel service (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah Yeah. exactly and and i think that i think it's a great thing you're doing josh because i think it, it it brings in like what you're doing and uh you can correct me if i have a the, the wrong bet on this but like the, what I feel like what you're doing is you're focusing things on the bartender but not in the way where the bartender is like the star of a fucking show like like we we've, we've kind of gone down this road with cock, like craft cocktail bartending it's not like the competition bartender is like you're focusing on how the bartender can make the guest experience better rather yeah. than how the bartender can make themselves a superstar yeah, exactly. And something that I think about anytime I come across a bartender who thinks that like, and it is honestly, it is really cool. And I have been in a position where I get asked to do media stuff. And like I was saying, I get to be on TV and that shit is cool. And I appreciate it. And I love it. Hmm. Um, but something to keep in mind, like if you are a bartender that's been getting a lot of heat, or you just want to, you know, a competition, whether it's locally or globally, like huge things. The way that I uh, take myself down a peg anytime I'm starting to think that I'm doing something that deserves any kind of recognition or whatever is to think of the Cosmopolitan, Mm -hmm. which was created in the 80s. Tony Tacchini and then uh, Dale DeGroff popularized it. And there was a picture of Madonna holding a Cosmo in her hand and someone snapped a picture and asked her what the drink was and Dale DeGroff made it. And so Dale DeGroff is like credited as being the popularizer of the Cosmopolitan. Yep. 
um, which is cool. And then whoever the guy was that wrote Sex and the City has Carrie Bradshaw drinking Cosmos all the time. Mm-hmm. And Sex and the City becomes the biggest show in the world. And everyone drinks Cosmos because they want to be like, I'm such a Miranda, you know. Um, there is no way that Sarah Jessica Parker or even her character, Carrie Bradshaw, has any idea who Dale DeGroff is. Right. And so if you want to talk about who the biggest deal bartender in the world is and you think that you're somehow super cool and super important because you made whatever drink and won whatever competition, just remember the person that wrote Sex and the City probably doesn't even know who Dale DeGroff is. Right. And uh, Dale, DeGroff, Dale DeGroff is like the biggest bartender in the world. Yeah, yeah he has a very interesting book as well. Um, yeah. So that's something to check out. Uh, right. But yeah, you're right. It, that, that's it. Like, let's. We got to get off all of our own dicks and just realize what we're doing is for the guest, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, a sorry, lot of the ahead. other stuff that we do with Bartender Atlas as well, I feel like uh, I should mention it's not just a website. We uh, we organize competitions. I mentioned a little bit earlier, we organized a bunch of movement classes mm-hmm. throughout, uh, throughout August, especially because I feel like that's when people were starting to get back to work and realize how sore they were. So, uh, so we have a friend that's a Pilates instructor and we got her, uh, her name's Jasmine. She asked us if we'd be interested in doing this. Like she had the idea and said, you guys are the ones to facilitate it. So, um, yeah, ran Jasmine's idea of bar for the bar. We were calling it. So bar classes is when you are doing a bunch of stretches and stuff, but you have something to sort of hold on to. Um, (laughs) There's like elements of it that involve dance. And so it's really good for your core and your glutes and your thighs and your wrists um which are all very bar related and then we yep. do we've done a couple we call them tours we've only done three because we were planning on doing one this year but uh so yeah. we did one in toronto we did one in halifax and we did one in melbourne australia so where, it's like a bar tour well three days of stuff uh oh. sometimes it's a really stupid black box competition that we do where the criteria is stuff like would you drink a second of these would you drink a third does the bartender seem more attractive <laughs> you know, like questions like that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, but it's more the competition is there just as a way for everyone to hang out and have a night out. You know? Right. Uh, and then we'll sometimes organize a bar hop where there's five or six bars within ten blocks of each other, and they'll all have a featured cocktail. Uh, at the same time, we try to run seminars during those as well, where you can learn a little bit. Uh, when we did our trip to Halifax, I taught a gin history class because gin history is like the thing that I think is most interesting as far as the history of booze goes. Oh, is that just right? The idea, just the idea of marketing something to become so extremely refined and British, and you picture ladies with their pinkies up drinking it. But <laughs> yeah. in reality, it's just yeah. pirate juice. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> dude. That's funny. Uh, yeah. And uh, just the evolution of going from one to the other yeah. and then back and then back again is really interesting to me. So we do these tours as well. We organize competitions. A lot of brands reach out to us. Something that we can do. Um, that uh, this is like a sale, this is going to sound salesy, but something that we can do with Bartender Atlas uh, as dealing with brands goes is not every brand has a budget to have a full-time brand ambassador all year round that organizes events and does all these tastings and everything. And a lot of smaller brands, and there are so many craft distillers now that are trying to figure out a way to get into bartenders' brains because they're really just like barely in whatever liquor store or whatever. Um, Because... The two, it's just two of us. We're pretty nimble. And because of my background in learning all this spirits background of everything and also learning how to make cocktails and also learning how to deal with bartenders, um, it's this 
uh, we get to ride this weird line with Bartender Atlas where we're somewhere between influencer and insider. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that I think we have going on that not a lot of other organizations do. Sure. A lot of things are very like trade focused or public focused, whereas we can kind of play both sides. Right. Yeah, that's, so that's like, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so it like kind of opens some, a whole new world for you there. Yeah. yeah. And if it's some small distillery that's like, oh, we want to do these events and do these trainings, but we only have like the four of us that work at the distillery. It's like, you can hire me. Tell me everything I need to know, and I'm happy to lead those classes. Jess is going to take photos of them. They're going to be posted all over the internet. They'll be good photos. And like, so we can do stuff like that as well. It's right. not entirely about the list of bartenders. Right. And you, bartenders and you also do a podcast as well, correct? Yeah. So that's, yeah, the other thing with Bartender Atlas, we're always doing features on different things. I'm doing a series about glassware right now, which is kind of hilarious. But yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. 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 The podcast that we're doing, though, um, again, I started it with the idea that it is about people and uh, ideally people who organize other events outside of just being behind a bar. That was the initial idea with it. But then as I started doing it and talking with more people, yeah, at least that's one thing in the bar industry, you have to be adaptable to everything. I mm-hmm. uh, started realizing that the better part of the Bartender Atlas podcast was getting people's background stories, not so much about like what they do in the bar, but how they got there and like people who... I had no idea that the manager of this music venue slash coffee shop slash cocktail bar in Birmingham, Alabama, took tap dance lessons for 14 right. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's good because it's similar to what we try and do is like, as well as bring out like the, the backstory of a person. But uh, I have you I just from one podcast to another, have you found challenges with people opening up? Um, bartenders, I find are pretty, uh, pretty friendly, pretty gregarious. Mm. Uh, it's not that hard to get bartenders talking, depending on the angle that you go in at. Um, right. I when when I'm organizing the Bartender Atlas podcast, I'll reach out to everyone first and be like, "This is here's some previous episodes. I follow basically the same right. path all the way through, yeah. starting with like where did you go to school or whatever. And once if you can get someone to talk about like what they were like in high school." they'll open up a whole bunch. Yeah. Because, uh, like, you've just asked them something that they probably haven't thought about in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, this is it's going to be one of those talks. Okay. And then by the time you start talking about bar stuff, you realize that if you were the head cheerleader in high school or um, uh, you worked at Ikea for three years or whatever, you really realize that all these stories have fed into how you are as a bartender, bar owner, bar manager, um, you know, whatever it is you do now and yes. how the building blocks that make everything work. Yes. So I, f- I found that, work. I found that as well from interviewing people is like, Oh, you worked at McDonald's. Like, of course mm-hmm. that like we, we interviewed several people who've worked at like fast food restaurants and just like how that structure helps out. Yes. Time, thank right? you. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Well, Josh, man, uh, I think what you're doing is amazing. Uh, we are going to be big supporters of Bartender Atlas, and Correct. thanks for coming on the show, man. It was that, that was a great Thank talk. Thanks for having me. I okay. very much appreciate it. And uh, I know, like, we're probably over time, but uh, you get talkative dudes in a room together it's gonna happen yeah oh yeah no there's no time on this show we just go (laughs) till it ends so uh plug your shit plug your all your no so if you're a bartender and you're listening go to bartenderatlas.com click on the join button there's 20 questions there again like we've been talking about everything from like 
what's the last photo you took to what's your favorite spirit. Um, 20 questions, real easy. You fill it out, send us a photo, and uh, then you'll be on the site. And you'll notice that when you Google yourself, your bartender Atlas thing comes up instead of some embarrassing like high school field hockey thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's great. Uh, it, it's the truth. Kip, yeah. Google yourself. It'll be amazing. I know. Um, Fuck, man. I've spent my entire life trying to be ungoogleable. But, yeah. <laughs> but now but now I come up. I did do that. Yeah. And also, as a bar owner, that's going to be really handy for you. Um, yes, hopefully. You, that's the other thing is once you're on Bartender Atlas, if you've got cool ideas for cocktails or cocktails that you're entering in competitions and you want to maybe, uh, you know, curry favor with a brand, it doesn't hurt. We post all of the bartenders' cocktails that get sent to us as well on the site. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. And then we have a newsletter and whatever, but I promise it's only once a month and it's only like three paragraphs. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to if you want to work with us or reach out to us for any reason, bartenderatlas at gmail.com and then social media. We really, most of it is just Instagram and that's at bartenderatlas. Uh, and it's me and my wife that run it. So uh, it's always fun to see how many people message Bartender Atlas, but only address it to me or only address it to her. Right. Uh, remember that there's two of us doing it <laughs> yeah okay well that was great josh and uh, like i don't think i'm speaking for dan well i speak for dan all the time yeah. i guess on this show but like uh, <laughs> uh if you ever want to do a little cross reference we'll we'd be lo- we'd love to come on bartender atlas podcast as well i like to send the risk okay something out. okay thanks again josh that was great thank you very much thanks so much guys